not sure what I can do here now. It's all right. Thank you. It's all right. I hope you'll feel it's all right. Oh, amen. Well, with all that energy and praise and worship, I'm going to ask you kind of an odd question, maybe sort of turns the tables just a little bit. Broken beyond repair. You ever heard that phrase? Have you ever used that phrase? Have you ever had an object, maybe, that after trying all you could do to repair it, you finally reached the conclusion it was just broken beyond repair? Maybe it was a shattered mobile phone. Maybe it was a window. Maybe it was a lawnmower, an automobile. Maybe even a structure or a house damaged by a storm. And at some point, it's determined the object is just unrepairable. Perhaps you or someone you know has reached a point in a broken relationship that feels broken beyond repair. Thesaurus.net lists these words as synonyms for the phrase broken beyond repair. Impossible. Irreversible. Incurable. Hopeless. Perhaps even today there are aspects of our world that we live in that just kind of feel like it's hopeless. Leaders can't get along. Wars between nations. Coup attempts. Governments are overthrown. There's civil unrest. We constantly hear about murder and violence and injustice. Neglect of the poor and the oppressed. There's power struggles, whether that's world leaders or government officials or maybe even just the managers in our own market workplace. Will there ever be peace? Will the violence ever stop? The list can just go on and on. But interestingly enough, with all of these things that we can think about that feel hopeless, those issues are not new for us today. In many ways, they're not any worse than they were a hundred years ago. Not any worse than they were a thousand years ago, even three thousand years ago. The writer of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 1 and verse 9, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So there you go. How's that for an uplifting start to our service? Especially after this, or this message, especially after a wonderful time of praise and worship. And believe it or not, this is not meant to be a downer. It's meant to be an encouraging message. A message of hope that we have talked about. That we've heard Charlotte read from Romans this morning. That we've sang about this morning. A message of hope that speaks into our current reality. And what led me to the subject of the sermon of hope was actually a Bible study that I and there are some of you have participated in over the past eight months. And it was a study of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah where God's chosen people seemed to be without hope as prophet after prophet spoke God's warning of judgment for the consequences of their sin. And it was not a pretty picture as both kingdoms ended up exiled into captivity in a foreign land. Before their captivity, they were actually experiencing all the things that I just listed. And they were going on in the world today. But in this story where God's chosen people appear to be broken beyond repair, there is this underlying and constant message of hope. 
And that message of hope is applicable for us today. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word hope? What do you hope for? Do you hope for a happy family? Do you hope to have a healthy marriage? Do you hope to have children? Do you hope to have a healthy and long life? Do you hope to have a financially secure or comfortable life? Have you ever felt like you've lost hope in something or someone? It might just be that at this very moment, you are hoping that Roger has the discipline to keep his sermon under 25 minutes like Bryce does. And we'll see later in this message that putting your hope in people, and Marcus replied to that, can often let you down. Well, the general consensus from many dictionary definitions of hope is that it is a feeling of expectation, a desire, or a wish for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of expectation, a desire, or a wish for a certain thing to happen. But when we look at hope from a biblical definition, it changes a little bit. Takes it one step further. Hope is an expectation with certainty that God will do what he has said. And I hope you can see the difference in that. One wish, one is a wish or a desire, but the other is a certainty and a guarantee. And so this morning I want to look at some examples from the history of Israel and Judah and ask you to think about how these examples apply in your life maybe today. And in doing so, my prayer is that we come to realize, or we at least are reminded, that certain hope is only found in a trustworthy, promise-keeping, and faithful God. So for the sake of time, I'm trying to keep that 25-minute line as best I can, we're going to take a real high-level look at the story of the divided kingdom. And it begins with the death of King Solomon. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And Rehoboam, as a new king, rejected wise advice from his elders, put a heavy yoke on the people. And so Jeroboam, one of Solomon's officials, led a large group in revolt. And the kingdom was divided. Rehoboam led Judah. Jeroboam became then the king of the much larger nation of Israel. And over the next 300 plus years, Israel and Judah will each be ruled by about 20 kings. And you know, a common characteristic of every king in Israel is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This phrase from 2 Kings chapter 13 about King Jehoahaz was repeated in some form for every king of Israel throughout the records of 1 and 2 Kings. And as you see in verse 2 stated, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. And he did not turn away from them. Jeroboam led the people to worship other gods, and every king of Israel continued to follow that pattern. You know, in the kingdom of Israel, seven different men became king by assassinating the current king. There were coups, there were government takeovers, there were power struggles between the leaders. In the kingdom of Judah, there were many evil kings as well. But there were also a few good kings. 
The good kings were not perfect, but certainly kings like Asa and Josiah, Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah came along and at times removed the idol worship. They restored the temple of the Lord. They brought reforms and turned the people back to God. They restored worship to God. They revived the Passover and many other things. And today as we read through these stories and this glimmers of hope begin to burst through in these times of spiritual revival among God's people. Just as it looked like it was all well and there was hope again, those glimmers of hope would fade. These reforms and these renewed times of worship of the one true God did not last. The sons and the grandsons of these kings in Judah fell right back into idol worship and self-trust. They were prideful. They oppressed the poor. They followed false prophets and teachers and they broke their covenant with God. And despite God's chosen people turning from Him over and over again, God in His love and mercy sent prophets to speak for Him to the people. These prophets like Elijah and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Habakkuk, and Micah, and many others continually and faithfully warned the people of coming judgment if they did not return, repent and return back to God. But along with those messages of judgment, they also spoke God's word of hope. They spoke God's word of restoration. And until I went through this study myself, I never really realized just how often this message of hope is embedded and woven into the story of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament and is spoken through God's prophets. God's people who seemed broken beyond repair, who looked to be hopeless as God's judgment was fulfilled through the nations of Assyria and Babylon, were always given a message of hope and restoration. But you know, even God's prophets experienced hopeless moments in this time. They either experienced or witnessed fear, despair, doubt, and uncertainty. Elijah fell to fear when the wicked Queen Jezebel vowed to have him killed. But before this, Elijah has witnessed God's provision and safety in so many miraculous ways. He has seen God's power over death and the resurrection of a widow's son. He has seen God's mighty power displayed in the challenge on Mount Carmel against 450 prophets of Baal. Yet when Jezebel threatened his life, fear overtook him. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 through 4, we see that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. In this moment, fear overcomes hope in the faithful prophet Elijah. Despair. The prophet Jeremiah was sent by God to proclaim God's coming judgment on Judah if they failed to repent. And Jeremiah was ridiculed by the people that he brought this message to. His life was threatened. He was imprisoned. 
He was shackled in chains. He was thrown into a cistern to die. And it sure seems like Jeremiah had to have had moments of despair, but actually we don't see that in Scripture. What we do see is Jeremiah mournfully lamenting over the people of Judah who failed to listen to God's warnings. Jeremiah experienced the cost of obedience to God, yet he remained faithful to his calling. He persevered faithfully even as he watched and lamented over the despair of Judah. Times of uncertainty. The prophet Habakkuk. I'm sure you have all recently read Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk had questions for God. He didn't understand what was going on in the world. How was God was working? In the first two chapters of Habakkuk, he complained to God about what he did not understand concerning God's ways. First of all, he questioned God's inaction over Judah's sin. In chapter 1 of Habakkuk, in verse 2, we read, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. God answered Habakkuk. So then Habakkuk questioned God's use of the more sinful Babylonians as an instrument of his judgment. If we move to verses 12 and 13, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You ever feel that way today? Sometimes I have those questions. Habakkuk had a moment in times of uncertainty and he had questions. Well, going back, God relieved Elijah's fear, relieved his fear by providing nourishment. An angel came to him at that time when he was under the bush and provided food and gave him times of rest. And during his desperate state, then God gave him that nourishment to move on. And he traveled for 40 days and came to the cave at Mount Horeb, which may be a familiar story to some of us. And at that time then, God made His presence known to Elijah outside this cave at Mount Horeb. And He did so through a powerful wind, through an earthquake, and fire, and finally a whisper. You know, like Elijah, we all have moments of discouragement or fear in our lives, but God promises to meet us where we are. He strengthens us. He gives us purpose. He renews our hope and helps us carry on. Jeremiah did not fall into despair despite the tragic state of Judah because he trusted in God's promises. Judah had broken their covenant with God, but Jeremiah knew that God was trustworthy to keep his promises. Jeremiah trusted in God's promise of a new covenant to restore his people and forgive their sins, 
even as they are going into captivity. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse Verses 31 to 34, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds, and write it on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Covenants are made all throughout Scripture. There are covenants between nations and covenants between individuals. But the most notable occurrences that we normally see are those covenants between God and His people. So God's covenant through Noah, through Moses, Abraham, and David. And biblical covenants can be conditional or unconditional. An example of a conditional covenant is the promise of blessings or cursings that are found in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. But then God's covenant with Abraham isn't Example of an unconditional promise in Genesis chapter 12. God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation and bless all people through his offspring. No strings attached. Well, Jeremiah called out to God's people concerning how they had broken that very covenant that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy. They refused to submit to God's authority, refused to obey him. So by their actions... God's people have broken their covenant with God and they'll face the consequences. So why doesn't God now just walk away? I have to ask myself that. Why not just go ahead and reject these people forever? He's given them so many opportunities to repent. In our our eyes, that seems like maybe the natural response. I have done everything I can do and they just will not listen. But we have to remember that God did not have the ability to reject his people forever. He couldn't do it. And why is that? Because he gave his word. It was an unconditional promise made by a faithful and trustworthy God. There were no conditions. God chose and promised to bless his people and all nations through the offspring of Abraham. And today we should find security in God's promises. God always upholds His covenants. He's trustworthy even when we are not. Had Habakkuk just totally lost hope because of his limited understanding of God and His ways? Habakkuk had many questions for God. He did not understand how God was working and why things happened the way they did. And he expressed that very clearly and frankly to God. Habakkuk found himself caught in the gap between what he knew about God and what he saw happening in his world. And that can happen to us today for sure. But despite his questions, despite his uncertainty, Habakkuk remembered who God was. That God was the eternal, the almighty, holy, and faithful one who was his rock and steadfast hope. So after these exchanges with God, Habakkuk offers a powerful prayer to the Lord 
in chapter 3. And that prayer ends with this, uh, this stanza of this song of prayer. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. True faith looks beyond visible circumstances and embraces unseen realities. We know this verse, Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. David said in Psalm chapter 62, verses 5 through 8, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. So I thought through these things and I thought about hope in God because He's a faithful promise keeper. Even when we don't understand I tried to think of some attributes of God that would fit into an acronym for the word hope. That could come up with very many. But these are the ones that stood out to me. Holy. God is pure, righteous. He's high and lifted up. He's perfect in goodness and righteousness. I want to put my trust in one who is fully pure and righteous. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is never surprised. He knows all that there is to know. He knows the past, the future. He knows every person even before we're born. He knows the number of our days and all the plans He has for us. I want to put my hope and my trust in the One who knows everything. He's perfect. Everything God is, does, and says. All of His attributes and all of His works are completely free of default or of fault or defect. What God wills is good and perfect. His ways are flawless. His judgments are upright. Everything God is, does, or says is right. And I want to put my trust in one who never makes mistakes. And He's fully good. And last of all, He's eternal. God exists outside of time. He's not measured by anything. He has always been and He will always be. No one is like Him because God is eternal. He can offer us eternal life. His promises and His purposes go far beyond our time spent here on this earth. I want to put my hope in one who is not temporary and whose faithful promises last forever. You know, our hope should, should be based on the fact of who God is and really nothing else. If God's not the object of our hope, then we don't have that true biblical hope that we talked about at the beginning because then the certainty has now been removed. Without that, our hope 
simply reverts back to a wish. I heard Randy Harris share this example at a conference four years ago, and it's always stuck with me. And just to quickly summarize this, he talks about when Adam and Eve were first in the garden before the fall. They had this perfect peace. Peace with each other. Peace with the animals. Peace with nature. Peace with God. But they're tempted to eat a fruit that would make them like God. These human beings who have so much go for the one thing that they don't have, their independence. If they could become like God, they don't need the tree of life anymore. They could become the source of their own security. They're tempted with independence. Well, the result of giving in to that temptation becomes the story of the rest of the Bible. And that is simply this one statement, this one question. Will human beings try to become the source of their own security or will they trust God? God is the only true source of security. God is the only one who is a faithful promise keeper. His promise to Abraham to bless all people through him was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. The promise of a Messiah from the line of David was fulfilled despite the people of Judah and their sin that led to judgment. And God has promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Those promises give us hope today because we have seen God already as sovereign, as a faithful promise keeper throughout Scripture, and hopefully in our own lives. Revelation 21 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. He will be, they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The day is coming when God will make all things new. You know, perhaps you've experienced a feeling of hopelessness in your life recently. Fear, or despair, or uncertainty can easily creep into our minds just as they did with God's people that we read about in Scripture. If we can pray together with you, that invitation is open this morning. Perhaps you've placed your hope in things other than God that have failed you or disappointed you. We are here to encourage you this morning and walk with you back to trust in God. If you have not put your trust in the salvation that comes only through the gracious gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation that we're going to sing about here in just a minute, we are here today to pray and talk with you we're here to journey together as church and we strive together to put our trust and our security 
in the certain hope that is only found in a trustworthy, promise-keeping, and faithful God. We'll close the sermon with the Scripture, and then we'll sing, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and sing together. Salvation.